Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I am talking to the author of The Great Suppression, Voting Rights, Corporate Cash, and the Conservative Assault on Democracy. The book is published by Crown this year, just recently, and the author is Zachary Roth. Zach, how are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's such a, a, a pleasure to have you on. Uh, the topic is one that... Um, we have heard about before, but I think your book is so very interesting on it and so very timely. Before we get to it, maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. I'm a reporter for MSNBC and NBC. I've covered the voting rights stories uh, pretty closely over the last three years, including often traveling to Texas, to Ohio, to Wisconsin, to, to talk to people on the ground about, about how those voting restrictions are, are kind of affecting their, their ability to vote. Um, and I've also covered some other kind of democracy issues, money and politics, gerrymandering, all those topics that, that I write about in the book. Yeah, it's it's great. It's it's a really interesting take on on such an important issue, an issue that I've uh, written about as well. You begin your book talking about Beaumont, Texas, and someone named Mike Getz. Would you tell us first who who Mike Getz is, and maybe a little bit about what he's been up to in Beaumont? <laughs> sure. You know, it's probably easier to start with the big picture to explain exactly what, what Mike Getz has been doing and, and, and why he matters. As you, I'm sure, know, in 2013, uh, the Supreme Court issued a, a momentous ruling uh, on voting rights in the Shelby County v. Holder case, in which it essentially invalidated the strongest and most effective plank of the Voting Rights Act, the, the most effective civil rights law ever. Uh, so, And what that did was it removed uh, almost, it removed all of the, the states that had a history of discrimination from the pre-clearance regime, meaning they had previously had to get all of their election changes approved by the federal government to make sure they weren't discriminating against minorities. Now they would no longer have to do that. That brings us to Mike Getz. He had been trying. He he is a a conservative city council member uh, in the the city of Beaumont, Texas. He had been trying uh, with his allies for a couple years to change the way Beaumont elects its school board. Uh, He and his allies objected to the majority black school board for a number of reasons. They they alleged corruption and incompetence on the part of the school board. Um, And so he and his allies have been trying to change the way that Texas, uh, that Beaumont elects those members uh, by moving to an at-large system where School board members are elected by the city as a whole rather than individually by district. And what that would have meant was that it would be much easier to elect uh, white school board members, essentially, or candidates preferred by by white members of the electorate uh, rather than black ones, because Beaumont is a majority white city. And so every member would be elected by by the city as a whole, by the district as a whole. Uh, He had been blocked from doing that a number of times, well, twice, under the Voting Rights Act, because, as we said, Beaumont had to clear all of its changes 
with the federal government. And they had said, no, you can't do that. That's going to set back black political power on, on, in Beaumont. Uh, as soon as that decision from the Supreme Court came down, he and his allies said, oh, things have changed. We no longer need the federal government's approval. We're going to go ahead and do this. Uh, and essentially what that allowed them to do was to unseat uh, the black majority on the board, even without an election, and, and to install their preferred white members. Um, and that's just one small, very local example of the effect that Shelby County has had. Across the South, you've had other districts uh, doing these same kind of schemes to change their methods of elections in ways that, that set back minority political power. Then statewide, from Texas to North Carolina to Virginia to South Carolina, uh, you've had voter ID laws and other restrictions uh, that previously would have been blocked by the federal government under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that now have been greenlighted and allowed to go into effect. This election coming up, this presidential election, will be the first in over 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, where you have a number of these new restrictions in place. Uh, and a lot of people are very concerned about what we're going to see as a result of that. Yeah, and as, as you just mentioned, uh, this uh, weakening of the Voting Rights Act had, had other effects, and, and it had effects on the way in which people cast ballots in Texas. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the background of some of these moves to change the way people present identification, because I think at this point, uh, we many people have heard about these voter ID laws, but you, you sort of trace this back a little bit. What was happening? What, what was the motivation? What was the strategy behind this? Well, it's a great time to be talking about this because just yesterday, uh, a federal appeals court actually ruled to that the, the Texas voter ID law violates the Voting Rights Act and it needs to be fixed. Uh, we don't know quite how that's going to shake out, but but that's a huge step in in taking away one of the biggest barriers to voting that has has been enacted in recent years. Um, but in terms of what you're asking, the the background to it was, is that, as many people know, uh, the demographics of Texas, along with a bunch of other states in the South and across the country, have been changing in recent years. Um, and there's been an enormous growth in the Hispanic population that really threatens the conservative white majority that has been in power in Texas for over two decades. Um, and that has created a intense desire on the part of conservative Republicans uh, to pass a voter ID law to, to make it more difficult to vote. Um, and they tried to do so uh, for two sessions previous before they, they eventually succeeded in doing so in, in 2011. They, they used a whole bunch of kind of very unusual parliamentary maneuvers to get it through when Democrats were, were trying to block it. Uh, and eventually they succeeded in, in 2011. And, and looking at, at statements from legislators at the time just makes it absolutely clear that they had this this awareness of, of the soaring Hispanic population and the threat that that posed to their political power. They, of course, they talk a lot on the record about the, the need to, to combat voter fraud. Uh, but as the court pointed out just yesterday, um, the, the law actually did nothing to uh, stop absentee ballot fraud, which is the only area where there is some legitimate threat of fraud. It only applied to in-person voting, where you've only had two uh, proven cases of fraud in 20 million votes cast over the last decade, I believe. So, so those, uh, you know, that talk about fraud uh, is pretty hard to, to take seriously. Now, you trace much of this back to a conservative movement backed by corporate cash. That's in your title. So first, 
What do you mean by corporate cash? And, and then would you describe a bit who makes up the conservative movement that you're referring to? Sure. Um, I, I, I guess there's two there's two key prongs to this uh, that I write about in the book. Um, the first is the the uh, sort of explosion of campaign contributions from both super wealthy individuals, you know, people like Sheldon Adelson and, and the Koch brothers, uh, and, and from from corporations themselves, uh, that has been uh, greenlighted by the Supreme Court in in a series of decisions um, over the last seven or eight years. The most prominent uh, being the Citizens United case, uh, but a, a number of other decisions too that that really. Um, sort of decimated the campaign finance, uh, the structure of campaign finance regulations that had been in place at least since the 70s and, and opened up this kind of new world. You know, when some people talk about it, they, they say that, that it's allowed people to buy elections. That's not quite right, as the, the Republican primary has shown, where Jeb Bush had, had, you know, far more money than anybody else, but it didn't do him much good. Uh, what it has done, clearly, is to give the wealthy uh, much more influence in funding campaigns than, than ordinary Americans have. Uh, and that, that's the landscape that we now face. Um, the other, the other sort of strand of this is the alliance between Republican politicians and corporations, which obviously is a, is a long-standing fact of our politics. But, but one place where it's particularly come out in this kind of assault on democracy that I write about is these preemption laws. And what that is, is states passing laws, uh, red states almost always, saying uh, cities or local governments cannot uh, legislate on things like the minimum wage, on, on mandating paid sick leave, on environmental regulations. Uh, they're banned from passing these local laws, uh, and we're going to pass a state law that, that bans them from doing that. And that is a, a, a push that has come, uh, that has been coordinated by uh, the business lobby, often by a group called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, uh, which serves as a kind of umbrella group for corporate lobbyists. They'll get one of those bills passed in one state, then pass it around to their members uh, as a kind of model to follow in other states. Uh, and it's a way to limit the power of local governments, often progressive cities, uh, to pass these kind of economic or environmental regulations. Uh, and it's another kind of way that, that, that they're launching a, a, a sort of full-blooded attack on, on the power of ordinary people to set the direction of their communities, in my view. Now, progressives have responded to these conservative strategies. They haven't just been sitting still. Uh, what has been happening on that side in regard to voting and elections and participation and the kinds of things that you describe as threats to democracy? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the, the hopeful piece of this. Uh, it, it it took a few years into the 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 campaign to make voting more difficult for progressives and, and Democrats and voting rights advocates to understand what was happening, I think, and to, to formulate a strategy to push back. But in the last year or two, uh, they have. Uh, and that consists in part, of course, in, in pushing back against these voter ID laws and other restrictions, both politically and in the courts. In fact, they've been doing that for, you know, since the start with, with some success. Sometimes they're successful, sometimes not. But what it's, what it's even more importantly, they've started doing in the last year or two is pushing for their own expansive laws, uh, both in terms of voting, uh, where uh, about five or six states in recent, in the last year or two, 
have passed automatic voter registration laws, uh, which, which essentially automatically register you to vote anytime you come in contact with the DMV, unless you affirmatively say you don't want to be registered to vote. So it kind of switches the default to being registered rather than being not registered, which, which is a huge deal and can potentially transform the electorate in any state that does this, California being the most prominent example. Uh, so they've done that. They've gotten behind other sort of ways to make it easier to vote, um, online voter registration, expanding early voting, same-day registration. All of that has tremendous momentum in, in state governments, especially blue state governments right now. You've seen Hillary Clinton endorse m many of those ideas. And then on the money and politics side, you're seeing a number of very innovative legislative responses to Citizens United, uh, mainly setting up these uh, public financing systems that Maine ha has just passed one, Seattle just passed one, uh, that provide, Seattle's provides vouchers to every voter to make a, their political contribution to whatever candidate they want. So it's a way, rather than banning uh, rich people or anyone from, from giving money, which Supreme Court has said is, is very difficult, uh, it's a way to empower ordinary people to, to, to become equals on the sort of campaign finance playing field. And there, there's tremendous uh, hope for, for that approach. Now, do you have any sense, sort of uh, after having written this book and paying attention to politics as much as you do, of who's winning? I mean, I, you hate to reduce it down to that, uh, but, but we sit at the, at the edge of a uh, major presidential election. Uh, we're recording this uh, at the end of the Republican convention. The Democrats are coming up soon. But do you have a sense of, of where we are? You've mentioned a couple of uh, Supreme Court decisions recently that are going in different directions. Where do you stand on this? Are you generally optimistic? Uh, are you generally po uh, pessimistic? What's your takeaway from having written the book? Um, it's a great question. And it's, I, I can't say that I've formulated the sort of perfect answer or, or figured that out clearly in my head. Um, it's, sometimes it depends on the day. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I suppose um, in the long run, I, I am optimistic that because of what I was talking about, we've seen in the last year or two, that um, it's now clear that when more people vote, uh, Democrats do better. When fewer people vote, Republicans do better. And so both parties have kind of figured that out and picked their their side on that. Um, but but if you just look at the number of bills that have been introduced in state legislatures, for instance, and compare the number of expansive ones to restrictive ones, there are now many more expansive ones. And that's, you know, that makes sense because it's a much easier political sell to say we want to encourage people to vote than to say uh, we, we want to discourage people to vote, which is sometimes actually what you hear from Republicans, or even to say, you know, there's all this fraud and illegal voting that we have to protect against. There is still, what's discouraging is there is still a belief among, among many, among the population uh, that that is a concern, voter fraud, and that, that it's reasonable to take these steps to prevent it, because there's been this very effective sort of PR campaign, propaganda campaign, I would say, uh, to promote that view, even though it's false. Um, and so you see polls that show 60, 70, 75 percent support for voter ID. Um, but if you look closer, as I say, at, at what's really happening in terms of legislation introduced, it's going in the right direction. And if you look at our history, you know, it's in fits and starts for sure. And we've gone through periods of expansion and contraction in terms of 
how, how easy it is to vote for different groups in terms of, of how much democracy we have as a whole. Uh, but the broad trajectory of that uh, is in favor of, of more democracy and more power for ordinary people. The book is, again, The Great Suppression, Voting Rights, Corporate Cash, and the Conservative Assault on Democracy, published just recently by Crown. Zachary Roth, Roth is the author. Zach, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and I have the author of Corporate Citizen, An Argument for the Separation of Corporation and State. The book is published by Carolina Academic Press this year. The author is Chara Torres Spelisi. Chara, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's such a pleasure uh, to have um, seen when this book came out and to have talked to you about the book and now finally to get the chance to have you on the podcast to talk about it. I know a little bit about your background, but maybe you can share a little bit of that and a little bit more. Um, tell us about yourself. Sure. Well, my name is Chara Torres Spellacy, and I'm an associate professor of law at Stetson, which is located near Tampa, Florida. And I'm also a fellow at the Brennan Center. Okay, wonderful. And, and those two different hats that you wear clearly inform this book that is, is both about uh, the Constitution and, and ways that it's interpre- interpreted in the political space. Let's begin as you begin the book. With you sitting by your computer on January 21st, 2010, what were you doing on that day? Why were you sitting nervously in front of your computer? Well, we were waiting for the Supreme Court to rule in a case called Citizens United versus FEC. And so what constitutional attorneys across the country do when the Supreme Court is about to rule is they log on to SCOTUS blog, which is not run by the Supreme Court. It is a separate private entity that covers the Supreme Court. And because the Supreme Court doesn't allow cameras in, SCOTUS blog is one of those ways that the public learns what the court is up to. And so I'm hitting refresh, 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 refresh on my computer. And um, I'm doing what used to be called waiting for Lyle. Uh, and Lyle was the uh, reporter for SCOTUS blog at the time. And as soon as I get a link to the opinion, I sit there and this is a true story. I start reading the opinion And part of my hair starts going gray. And that sounds like an exaggeration, but it was such a momentous change in the way the Supreme Court dealt with corporations and politics. And I had put in two briefs in the Citizens United case as it had wound its way through the Supreme Court. Citizens United is one of these odd cases that was actually argued twice, um, which puts it in a a sort of rare pantheon with Brown versus Board of Education and Roe v. Wade. And this decision allows uh, corporations to spend an unlimited amount of their resources on political ads in American elections, whether those elections are local, state or federal. Yeah, and and I I imagine you were not alone sitting uh, behind your computer and uh, those that filed uh, in, you know, on various sides of the issue, I think, were also probably as surprised as you were because of how uh, substantial this ruling was. The Citizens United ruling is in part about the definition of a corporation 
and and your book is about that too. So on a very basic level, what is the legal definition of a corporation? And what has the Constitution in the past said about corporations? We'll sort of catch up to what it's saying now about them, but maybe you can sort of set the foundation here for us. Sure. So uh, a corporation is one legal way of organizing a business entity. Uh, And the basic structure is you have a board of directors, which makes big decisions for the corporation, including hiring officers. Those officers run the corporation on a day-to-day basis. And the funding for the corporation is from investors or shareholders. Those shareholders have the ability to elect the board of directors. And so both the officers and the directors have a fiduciary duty to those investors to maximize profits. Now, has this changed at all? Is this an old legal concept? Is this a relatively new, in, in legal terms at least, concept? Where does this fit into kind of our, our, our long story of, uh, of American history? What, where does the corporation fit? Sure. So corporations are older than America. Um, the corporate form uh, started in medieval Europe, and it was uh, brought to the United States along with European colonists. And so one of the things that the Supreme Court has had to deal with is how do we give um, rights or which rights are appropriate to recognize for corporations. And so very early on, the Supreme Court had to think about this. And they thought about it in the early 1800s. And the questions there were basically, should corporations be covered by the Constitution's contracts clause? And should the Supreme Court recognize corporate property rights? And in early cases, in the early 1800s, when the Supreme Court was new itself, they basically copied what British common law had done, which was to recognize very robust corporate rights uh, under the contracts clause and very robust corporate property rights. And so over time, the Supreme Court has come to what you might think of as forks in the road, where they could have limited corporate rights, but often the choice that they have made in various decisions is to expand corporate rights. So, for example, after the Civil War, there were a series of amendments that were made to the U.S. Constitution, which are sometimes known as the Reconstruction Amendments, sometimes known as the Civil War Amendments. And these are the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. And the important one for our purposes today is the 14th Amendment, which provides for equal protection under the law. Now, I think the drafters of the 14th Amendment intended the Equal Protection Clause to protect newly emancipated slaves. But uh, newly emancipated slaves were not the ones who showed up at the Supreme Court clamoring for more rights. Instead, it was corporate lawyers. Um, Often it was lawyers for railroads in particular, who advanced very expansive arguments that corporations should be covered by the Equal Protection Clause. And the post-Civil War Supreme Court agreed uh, that corporations should get very expansive protections under the Equal Protection Clause. 
And moving forward in history, I, I think the, the next big fork in the road was in the 20th century. And the question there was, as the Supreme Court had expanded First Amendment protections, mostly for individuals, where I think it is most appropriate. But the question then arose, well, do these expanded First Amendment rights, these protections of the freedom to speak and the freedom to associate, are those appropriately given to corporations as well? And the Supreme Court, in a case called Bellotti from 1978, decided that, yes, uh, corporations should have very expansive First Amendment rights. And in that case, they gave corporations the ability to spend in ballot measure campaigns. So if there's um, a ballot initiative, say in California, under that decision, a corporation cannot be limited in how much money they spend on uh, such a political question. Now, we're sort of starting to get to this this change that, that you refer to as a sort of a snowball effect over time, as corporations have asked for more and more rights. But you also talk a little bit about the other side of this, which is the responsibilities. Now, citizens have all sorts of rights and responsibilities. What about corporations? Um, are there a set of responsibilities that, that are, have been a part of this conversation at the uh, Supreme Court level, or has the conversation mainly focused on questions of their uh, various rights? Sure. So one of the things I'm trying to do in Corporate Citizen is to look at the forest and not just the trees. So the trees here are single wins by corporations in a, in a single case. But the forest is what is happening across the board for corporations in our democracy. And the big trend that I see is that corporations are gaining American rights without concomitant responsibilities. Uh, and so this is, I think, a book that's bigger than just, say, Citizens United, which, of course, was a huge change in the law, but it was just one step down a road, um, I think, down a very dangerous path, if you will. And so one of the things I try to do is look at not just the money and politics aspects where corporations seem to be gathering up more and more First Amendment rights. But looking also at the other areas of law where I teach, which is in corporate law. And what I saw in my corporate law cases, as opposed to my uh, constitutional law uh, cases, which I also teach to my students, is in the corporate context, I was seeing corporations being excused from various responsibilities. And so in the book, I try to deal with um, a number of areas where I see corporations shirking responsibilities, whether it's not paying taxes uh, to the United States Internal Revenue Service, or uh, being bad stewards of the environment, but the one that sort of got me um, while I was writing this book was the way that corporations are weaseling out of being defendants in human rights abuse cases. And if you want me to expand on that, I can. Um, but it, it seems really strange that at the very same time that corporations are given the ability to literally spend as much as they want to in American elections, 
which you might think, okay, we're going to give them these rights, but that should probably come with a lot of responsibilities, like, you know, paying their fair share of taxes, for example. Um, instead, they get to spend an American election sort of to their heart's content, and they get to park their assets elsewhere and not pay into um, for the public good. Now, l- let's let's go back to the human rights question in just a second, but, but I want you to talk a little bit more about the Citizens United ruling, both because it's very significant, but, but also not, not the only case that, that matters. Um, but it's been uh, given a lot of import- importance. Uh, what did it do exactly for corporations? Uh, what could corporations do after 2010 that they couldn't do in the past? So there were two primary laws that were impacted directly by Citizens United. One uh, is called FICA, the Federal Election Campaign Act, and the other one is called BICRA, which is the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. And in both of those laws, there are restrictions on corporations making expenditures to buy political ads in federal elections. And so one of the key holdings of Citizens United is that corporate ban was unconstitutional. It was not um, consistent with the First Amendment, according to the 5-4 majority in Citizens United, for the Congress to try to limit corporations from speaking in American elections. Uh, Now, because the writing of the opinion was so broad, it not only applied to that federal law that was being challenged, it also knocked out over 20 state laws that had previously banned corporations from spending in state elections. So it had this sort of multiplier effect. It was this tiny little um, challenge to, and it started out as a sort of modest challenge. It was a challenge to the disclosure requirements that attach to um, spending in a federal election. But it got expanded out um, because of a very strange thing that happened in the first oral argument at, at when Citizens United was first heard by the Supreme Court. So Justices uh, Kennedy, Alito, and Roberts were asking the acting Solicitor General about you know, where, where, what's the logical uh, conclusion that we can draw from the, the current ban? Would you be able, would the government be able to ban books under this, um, these rules? And the, the short answer to that is no, the government would not be able to ban books under this, uh, these laws. But uh, the acting solicitor general in that first oral argument basically backed himself into a corner and kept on repeating the government could ban books under this under these mm-hmm. laws and that um really freaked out the justices um and i think rightfully so it's pretty rare to have a government lawyer stand before the supreme court and claim that the government can ban books and so after that um, botched oral argument, it's set for re-argument. And in the re-argument, the Supreme Court itself expands the questions that are being litigated. So it's no longer just this little disclosure fight. 
it becomes a question about whether the longstanding bans, and one of them was uh, over 60 years old at, at the federal level, whether the ban on corporations making political expenditures was itself constitutional or not. And ultimately, the Supreme Court said in, in the Citizens United decision that that type of ban was unconstitutional. Now, why does this matter? You, you make an argument that this matters a lot and, and that there should be greater separation between the corporation and the state. Uh, why is this the case? And, and maybe maybe this touches on, on some of the questions about related to human rights uh, that you mentioned before. But but you know, maybe make your case that uh, this is a, a substantial and, and an area worthy of consideration of reform. Sure. So, I mean, I think when it boils down to it, this is uh, a question about whether the economy will make rules for our democracy or whether our democracy will make rules for our economy. And what I mean by that is Citizens United and some of the cases that have come after it really empower corporations to use the First Amendment in a very blunderbuss way. And what corporations and their lawyers are doing in court is using the First Amendment to deregulate in a number of areas. And so they will make arguments that because of the First Amendment and because Citizens United recognizes such strong First Amendment rights for corporations, that very sort of, I think, what people would have thought of as plain vanilla disclosure requirements uh, or or warnings are are not appropriate anymore. And so a couple of the examples, and I will get back to human rights in a moment, uh, mm -hmm. that I use in my book, in Dodd-Frank, there was this requirement to disclose whether certain goods had been made with what are known as conflict minerals. And conflict minerals um, come from Congo, uh, and they... Uh, basically, the, the the reason why Congress wanted some disclosure on this was there was a fear that conflict minerals were was funding civil war and and violence in in the in the Congo, and so the thought was if we had better transparency about this, that perhaps that you know that economy of these minerals funding violence might end and so there was this requirement to report uh, whether certain goods contained these minerals but companies who were subject to this rule challenged it and they won uh, the the court agreed that this was compelled speech which is uh, not allowed under our constitution and but it was compelled speech of, of, of corporate actors so which I think is quite different than the original roots of the compelled speech doctrine which was about the autonomy of individuals as in human individuals so these doctrines seem to be growing and they seem to be used by corporations to sort of weasel out of um, public disclosures that um, you know, their democratically elected representatives think are appropriate uh, regulations of corporate behavior. 
Yeah, it's it's um, really really interesting, and and uh, in the interest of time, let me just remind the audience about the title of the book: "Corporate Citizen and uh, an Argument for the Separation of Corporation and State." Uh, Shara, before we finished, maybe you can just uh, finish off um, just referencing that point that uh, you were uh, mentioning about human rights. How does how does that fit in? I think a lot of people would say that that sounds like a distant issue from our uh, discussions of. Of, of Citizens United and campaign finance reform. Uh, maybe you can wrap things up by making that connection for us. Sure. So the story that got me when in writing uh, Corporate Citizen was um, a lawsuit that was brought against Nestle. And it was actually up in the Supreme Court this term. And what Nestle was asking the Supreme Court to do was to excuse them from the lawsuit. Now, the lawsuit was brought by former child slaves in Cote d'Ivoire. And what these former child slaves said is we worked in the, in the cacao plantations in Cote d'Ivoire and Nestle was buying the, the cacao to use in their chocolate. And so what they accused Nestle of is aiding and abetting their slavery as children. And this has been winding through the courts uh, now for over a decade. But the I think the argument that Nestle was making in this case, which um, was it had a cert petition before the Supreme Court this term, and I think fortunately for all of us, the Supreme Court denied cert in that case because the argument was because they were a corporation that uh, international human rights laws could not apply to them, which I think is a really dangerous argument. But it wasn't an outrageous argument from a legal point of view because of two cases that I discuss in the book. One is called Kiobel and the other one is called Daimler. And in these twin cases, the Supreme Court has made it extraordinarily difficult for human rights abuse uh, victims to litigate against multinationals in U.S. courts, whether those are U.S. federal courts or U.S. state courts. And I think this is um, sort of maddening when you compare it to the approach in Citizens United. So in Kiobel, for example, Shell is um, deemed to be a Dutch and English um, corporation. And because they are Dutch and English, uh, the Supreme Court basically takes the stance that it would be inappropriate for them to be a defendant in U.S. courts. Meanwhile, Shell has all sorts of um, connections with the United States. Uh, they have a web of um, gas stations. There's one two blocks from my house. Uh, and Shell has uh, an American subsidiary. That American subsidiary can use its Citizens United rights to spend in U.S. elections. But when you try to hold Shell accountable for doing something awful, in this case, the events took place in Nigeria, uh, suddenly the U.S. courts have nothing to say about uh, Shell and holding Shell responsible. So it seems totally frustrating from a sort of holistic point of view that a normal American citizen 
uh, if they had done the things that Shell or Nestle were accused of doing, they'd be in handcuffs right now. Uh, but because of creative uses of the corporate form, so long as you, as a corporation, do the obnoxious things through a different subsidiary than the subsidiary that's before the court, they tend to turn a blind eye and, and they, they have a lot of respect for the corporate form, uh, which is facilitating all sorts of obnoxious behavior, especially in third world countries. Yeah, it's uh, the irony is in the, the, the inconsistencies uh, are so interesting, and uh, as is the book. Uh, again, the title, Corporate Citizen, an, org- uh, an Argument for the Separation of Corporation and State. Shara's book is published by Carolina Academic Press this year and available on Amazon for anyone who would like to go out and get it. Shara, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.